So our Bible readings, of course, are continuing to follow the pattern in Luke. But before reading the the passage from Luke, I'd like to read um, a few verses from Hebrews chapter 5 that that, uh, set the scene. And this is... um, in relation to, uh, to, to Jesus. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then our our Luke passage, continuing from, uh, from before, and we pick up the story on the final night of Jesus' life as a, as a human. This follows the final meal with his disciples when he heads into the garden to pray. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from the prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, And a man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour. When darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. 
Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow is with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Thank you, Alan and Tim. Good morning, everyone. Well, Al, as Alan said, we've been working our way through Luke's gospel account of the life of Jesus. And today we come to the night before Jesus died. It was an intense time. Luke draws us in to watch and listen to a group of men under extreme stress. It's not um, easy for us to relate to them, I'm glad to say. Um, Here we are in air conditioning, in comfortable chairs, a long way from danger. Uh, But we can learn a lot from what happened that night. Um, It's really important that we do, because the crisis that unfolded that night was not just life and death for those men, It had to do with the great spiritual crisis that confronts us all. See, our risk of experiencing war or terrorist incident or arrest in the dead of night by religious extremists, uh, it's pretty low. The risk of facing floods or bushfires or another pandemic is much higher, although even then we'll probably survive. But the probability of facing God and being called to account for the life we've lived, that is an absolute certainty. For many people, that's a terrifying thought. But because of the events in Luke 22, we can have hope to face that day of crisis with confidence. So let's pray again. And then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your great kindness to us. Uh, Thank you for the riches of your word. Uh, Thank you especially for preserving these events for us. Um, We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand what you're saying here. Please give us ears to hear. Uh, Please work amongst us by your spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, up until this point in the story, 
Uh, the disciples couldn't believe their luck. Um, Jesus had burst into their world. He cast out evil spirits. He healed deadly diseases. He taught God's truth with conviction. He was magnificent. The disciples knew they'd found the Messiah, the promised king. But as soon as they recognized who he was, Jesus started to teach them strange things. The greatness in his kingdom was about service. That he himself would be rejected and killed. Didn't make any sense to the disciples. And they seem to have tried to ignore Jesus' paranoia. Uh, They preferred to argue about who was going to be the greatest when Jesus came into his kingdom. And things were looking good. And they marched into Jerusalem. The crowds were cheering. Jesus cleaned up the temple, demolished those Jewish leaders in debate. They could almost taste it. So soon their man would be king. Jesus also knew that the moment of crisis had arrived. But Jesus knew exactly what that moment would look like. All the way through Luke's gospel, we hear this drumbeat of death. As early as chapter 9, Jesus said to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Earlier in chapter 22, Jesus has reinterpreted the Passover meal in terms of his own death. This is my body given for you. This cup is my blood poured out for you. Then chapter 22, verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. He knows the Jewish leaders are scheming to take him down. He knows that Judas has made arrangements to betray him, but he goes to the usual place. He knows what's coming and he does not shrink from it. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. The time of trial, the day of desolation and cosmic judgment that Jesus had warned about back in chapter 21 has arrived. And his command then is repeated here in verse 40. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then Jesus shows them how it's done. He falls to prayer. The first thing that struck me about this prayer is that Jesus is terrified. He's in anguish. His sweat is like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, just in passing, let me quickly point out how human Jesus is revealed to be at this moment. He is one of us. He was tempted. He feels. He knows weakness and fear. And nowhere do we see this more clearly than at this moment. We haven't really seen Jesus afraid like this. He has braved howling storms, violent demon-possessed men, powerful politicians plotting his downfall. Nothing has phased him like this. Sure, death is confronting, but other men have faced death with courage and dignity. Socrates, 
in his prison cell in Athens, took his cup of hemlock, raised it to his lips, and very cheerfully and quietly drained it. There have been many Christian martyrs, like Ignatius, a bishop in the early church, who wrote to his Christian friends, begging them not to get him released, so that he might have the privilege of dying for Christ in the arena. Why is Jesus otherwise so brave and determined in such anguish here? We get a clue in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. What is the cup Jesus is about to drink? It's very different from the poison that killed Socrates. Throughout the Old Testament part of the Bible, drinking the cup is a picture of facing the fierce judgment of God. Let me show you just a couple of verses from the Old Testament. Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Or Jeremiah 25. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn, a curse. Jesus is being asked to drink that cup. Jesus knew he was about to face the anger and judgment of God, not for his own sins, but for ours. This is my body given for you. God has been justly provoked to fury by the wicked deeds of humanity. Idolatry, murder, Lying, you name it. Now that anger will be directed against Jesus, the beloved son, the chosen one of God. It is because Jesus understands what his suffering and death means that he quails before it. The martyrs could face their deaths with joy. Because they knew that Jesus drank the cup for them. Jesus has drawn the sting of death by dealing with the most awful prospect in death, the judgment of God. We desperately need a hero if we are going to survive the coming crisis. Jesus is the hero we need. For he has endured the punishment we deserve so we don't have to. In this prayer, we also see Jesus' awesome trust. He speaks to God as his Father. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus doesn't want to be judged. But more than that, more than anything else, 
He wants to do exactly what his father wants him to do. He trusts his dad and he submits to his will. Let's just pause for a moment to explore why. Why is Jesus so determined to trust and obey no matter what it costs? Because I struggle to obey like this, especially if it means I'm going to suffer time, money, or if it means that I face scorn or conflict. Maybe I know better than God in my situation, and so I flex things. Those are tiny inconveniences compared to what Jesus was about to face, but I'm willing to compromise often if it means I avoid a little bit of pain. Can you relate to what I'm saying? Why is it that Jesus was determined? What is it that he understood that meant he stood firm? There's so many things to say, but let me just mention three right now. One, Jesus loved his father and he knew God would be glorified through his death. It was the only way that God's promises could be kept to rescue and forgive people. It was the only way that God could be both just and merciful. Jesus' sufferings bring honour to the Father. Two, Jesus understood that God is in control of all things. Even in these dark hours, God was in control. It's part of God's good plan for human history. In verse 53, when he's being arrested, Jesus says, This is your hour when darkness reigns. The powers of darkness will have their hour, but it will come and it will go. And on the other side is a brand new kind of light that like there's never been before. The joy and hope of resurrection. First suffering, then glory. Jesus knows that God is in control. Three, Jesus loved us, desperate sinners. I am the good shepherd, he said. The good shepherd lays down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. John 15. Jesus knew that this was the only way that we could be with him and share the glory of heaven. It's stunning, isn't it? Jesus trusts his father. He's determined to do his father's will. Jesus is some kind of man. For me, he's the hero I need. What a privilege to be able to devote my life to such a faithful, strong, loving man. So the time of trial has come. The hour of darkness is here. Jesus wages war in prayer. He faces his fear, he entrusts himself to God, and he emerges victorious. After this hour in prayer, Jesus is resolute once more. Put your swords away, he says to his disciples. I am the Son of Man, 
before the Jewish leaders. I am the king of the Jews. And he is sentenced to death. It doesn't immediately look like victory. The father did not take the cup from Jesus. Jesus drank it and suffered for the sins of all humanity. But God did not abandon Jesus to the grave. He brought Jesus through the suffering, raised him from death, glorified him. Now Jesus is the only hope for all people. He is the conqueror over sin and death and the devil. And it was there on his knees that Jesus won the battle. Jesus emerges victorious. But he's the only one that does. (laughs) The time of trial hits, and all around Jesus, everyone else crumbles away like sand castles swamped by the waves. Jesus alone stands firm in doing the will of God. While Jesus is praying, what are the disciples doing? Can't see them very well in the painting, so um, let's zoom in on them. There they are. They're sleeping. And Luke's quite specific about why. In verse 45, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. That word sorrow means a state of mental pain and anxiety. Jesus talked about the crisis and his betrayal and sufferings and death It obviously affected the disciples more than we might have realised from Luke's story so far. We find out a lot more in John's Gospel about how the disciples were feeling. They were confused and distraught. Things were not working out as they'd hoped. They're overwhelmed and they fall asleep. I feel for the disciples. It's a very normal physiological response to sustained stress. You might have been through something like this yourself, feeling exhausted. All you want to do is sleep. It was all too much for the disciples. But that's the point, isn't it? It was too much for them to deal with. It was too much for Jesus to deal with by himself. That was why he turned to his father in prayer. And God gave him the help that he needed. Verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him And strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. He's strengthened to keep praying, to keep on entrusting himself to God. So Jesus has done what the disciples could not do, what each of us have failed to do, to trust God always. Again, Jesus is the hero we need. He is reliable though we are flaky. But Jesus' persistence in prayer is also a model for us to follow. And the promise of help and protection was not just for Jesus, it's for us too. Here's Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, With thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that anxiety and grief are complex, and I'm not suggesting that prayer will be a quick and easy cure. But for many of us, there is a spiritual dimension to our anxiety that is helped enormously by learning to turn our anxious thoughts into prayer. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, pray. Pour out your heart to God. Tell him your fears, your sadness. Ask your questions. He's big enough to cope with all of that. Our Heavenly Father is more than able to care for us. There have been times in my life when I've found it really difficult to pray. I've been very unwell or grieving. And in those times, it was such a blessing when my friends and family came alongside me and offered to pray for me and with me. And so let's look out for each other and get good at offering to pray for one another when we're struggling. Um, I'm sure your friends will appreciate that. Well, the time of trial hit and Judas took a mighty tumble, didn't he? Uh, He was one of the 12, a privileged insider. And yet he stooped to betraying Jesus with a kiss. What was going on there? Dave spoke last week about the unseen spiritual battle that was raging in the background. Satan was manipulating Judas for his own evil ends. But Judas was also a willing participant. Uh, From the different gospel accounts, we can piece together something of what motivated Judas to betray his teacher. Uh, John 12 tells us that Judas was the treasurer of the disciples and he was also a thief. He used to help himself uh, to what was in the money bag. And like all the disciples, he was looking forward to the glory days with Jesus where his bank account would be looking a whole lot better. But when Mary anointed Jesus, remember she splashed around thousands of dollars worth of perfume all over Jesus' feet and head, that was the last straw for Judas. It suddenly became clear to him Jesus didn't care about the money or the glory. He was determined to die. And at that point, it seems, Judas became thoroughly disillusioned with Jesus. So he changed sides. I've had a number of friends over the years who've become disillusioned with Jesus. Um, The reasons why have varied. Wanting a relationship with an unbeliever, uh, suffering, being hurt by Christian people, uh, chasing success at work or the mighty dollar, getting caught up in another cause, like saving the planet. Uh, Sometimes, like Judas, there was a sharp turning point. But most often, it's a gradual drifting away over months and years, pulling back from serving, from church, from the Bible, until Jesus is no longer their first love. You might have friends like that. Perhaps you're struggling personally 
we're feeling a bit um, disappointed, disillusioned with Jesus. You know, it's really important to have right expectations. Jesus himself is crystal clear. I'm going to suffer and be rejected and killed. And if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. (laughs) See, Jesus is not promising a life of ease and universal admiration. At least, not in this world. There is glory coming. Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was looking forward to the joy of God glorified, of bringing many brothers and sisters to glory. The joy of resurrection and a new creation on the other side of the cross. First suffering, then glory. That's the right expectation. Even the great Peter collapsed under the pressure. He certainly had good intentions. The Last Supper, he's laying it all on the line for Jesus. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. But none of us really know how we will react until we're actually dropped into the pressure cooker. When it all kicked off, the first thing Peter does is lash out with his sword and slice off someone's ear. Um, We find out from John's Gospel that it was Peter. It was a brave thing to do. He had a huge crowd coming at him with swords and clubs. But Peter had wrong expectations too. And I'm sure he's a bit thrown when Jesus quietens everyone down and heals the gashed ear. What to do now? Well, he does more than most of the disciples. He follows Jesus to see what's going to happen. Can you see it? It's a motley crew round a fire in the middle of a courtyard. High walls surround them. There's only one way in or out. It's guarded by soldiers with plenty more soldiers all around. Starts mildly enough. A servant girl thinks she knows this man was with him. No, not me, Peter replied. After all, who's going to believe a lowly girl over a burly bloke like Peter? And again and again, he denies knowing Jesus each time having to bluff and bluster a bit more. This is fear at work. Peter didn't know what might happen if he was sprung. There's every chance he would have ended up alongside Jesus, being mocked and bashed and likely worse. I can relate to Peter. I'm pretty bold in a situation like this, (laughs) surrounded by friends with our Bibles open. But I hate being mocked. I don't like pain. I know I would have kept my head down too. I wouldn't have even got as far as Peter. I'm sure you know that feeling, that irrational fear in your own life and witness. So what's the answer? This week I was chewing over a little verse in 1 John. 
It says this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. In verse 61, after Peter's three denials, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Many have wondered what that intent look was all about. Knowing Jesus, it was a look of love. In spite of what Peter had done, Jesus loved him. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And Peter is heartbroken. After his resurrection... Jesus will restore Peter step by step and appoint him to care for his precious church. In this chapter, Peter feared men and what they might do to him. But Jesus' perfect love drove out his fear so that just a few weeks later, Peter would stand up in front of these same Jewish leaders and boldly proclaim Jesus is God's Messiah. The one that you killed is God's king. He was flogged, just as he'd feared. But he left rejoicing because he'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for Jesus' name. Do you struggle with fear, what others might say or do to you? Spend some time reflecting on the perfect love of Jesus for you. There's no better place to do it than here in Luke 22. He stared hell in the face. He chose to suffer and die to save you from hell. He is the victorious one. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, let me finish with another word of comfort. When the time of trial hit, everyone crumpled except for Jesus. We can relate to the disciples because we have failed too, again and again, and in much less extreme circumstances. But Jesus stood firm. And that reading we had initially from Hebrews teaches us that this experience qualified Jesus for a very important role. He's been designated by God to be our heavenly high priest. What does that mean? Well, it's very good news for any of us who struggle and fail. Hebrews 4 puts it like this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God... Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus understands. Jesus has been there. 
And Jesus is sitting in heaven at the right hand of God. When you and I come before God asking for forgiveness, Jesus intercedes for us with his Father. Yes, they are weak, he says. They have failed. But I am one of them, and I stood firm. Please show them mercy and grace on my behalf. That is what's happening. When we fail and repent day after day, and this is where our hope lies for the great time of trial that is coming, the day of final judgment. On that most terrifying of all days, our only hope, our only plea, is our great high priest who intercedes for me. What a blessing that Jesus stood firm in prayer there on the Mount of Olives that night. Whether we realise it or not, we desperately need a hero like Jesus. He has endured the worst that our world and the powers of darkness could throw at him and he has emerged triumphant. The humble, faithful, loving, great high priest. Is he your hero? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness, for your willingness to suffer, for loving us that much. We confess that we do not deserve your love. Please forgive our fears and our failures. Please teach us to pray. And give us the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is your love for us. Please drive out our fears with your love. Please give us eyes to see and the wisdom to care for those who are struggling all around us. We honour you, we exalt you, we proclaim you as the one true saviour and king over all. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.